you take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. A number of years ago, a couple in a church where we were serving had made some contact with some Jehovah's Witnesses and had set up a Bible study. They'd arranged it for a specific night, and then they invited me to come and join them. And the uh, terms of agreement for engaging with that group that night was that if we found any thing in the statement, in the literature that was being presented to us, if we found any questions, we were simply to raise our hand and we'd stop and talk about the issue. I think we made it through two statements. And one of the challenges in terms of engaging with them was the reality of who Jesus is. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Throughout the study, various passages were coming to mind. The couple who had who were hosting them, were bringing scriptures. I was seeking to bring scriptures. And over and over again, the Spirit of God was prompting me with Hebrews 1.6. Hebrews 1.6. And I ignored that prompting, sadly, for many moments during that study until finally I just felt compelled. I had one of their Bibles because they feel that our Bibles are second-rate, are discredited because they haven't come from the Watchtower. So I had one that was it the Green Bible or the Blue Bible or the Purple Bible, regardless of the color, I turned and I said, let's look at Hebrews 1.6. Open up their Bible, and here's what it said. When he, that is God the Father, brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. There was stone-cold silence. You see, the reality is the Jehovah's Witnesses do not honor Christ as God. He is not worthy of worship in their understanding. In John chapter 5, Jesus is engaging with the Jews and challenging them with the reality of who he is. He has come. He has come as God's anointed one. We'll look back at some of the references through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus where the Father honors the Son. And here in John chapter 5 and verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer in engaging with the Jews who were criticizing him because they felt he was breaking the Sabbath. And notice verse 18, for this reason, he had, he had just said, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Blasphemy was worthy of death. Equality with God was a charge for which you could be prosecuted. And so the Jews engaged this effort to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. 
he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. On another occasion, when I was engaging with a discussion with some Jehovah's Witnesses, there was a young man, grade 8 probably, grade 9, being trained by an older leader, and they had stopped at our door, as they are prone to do on Saturday mornings, as you're trying to get other things done, and they wanted to speak about their literature and present some of that to us. And in the, again, in the process of conversation, we turned to John chapter 5, and I asked the young man if he would read for me this particular text. And I said to him, have you studied any math? And he said, of course. He said, well, math's one of my favorite subjects. So I said to him, in verse 23, if you remove the words just as, and I, was, again, was using their translation, if you had to remove the words just as and substitute a mathematical symbol, what would you use? Instantly, he said, equals. I said, all right, let's read it this way that all may honor the Son equally as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've already had invested in singing your praise and singing the praise of Jesus who is called the Christ. We have gathered in his name. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we thank you for the authority of the name of Christ. Thank you for the privilege of knowing him. We pray that as we gather together tonight as your people, that our hearts would be, as it were, strangely stirred by the Spirit of God. We desire to honor the Son. We desire to honor Jesus Christ. We look at our own lives and thank you that you have rescued us out of the dominion of darkness. You've brought us into the kingdom of your dear son. And so, Father, tonight we pray that through our worship, through the study of your word, through our remembering the Lord in his death, that Jesus Christ would be honored. Thank you for this rich privilege, for the access we have into your presence. We thank you that in Christ... And through faith in Christ, we may approach you with freedom and confidence. We do that now because you've invited us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn back, if you would, to Psalm 2. That's where we were this morning. And in Psalm 2, I want to use this as a launch as we seek to honor the Son, our Savior. In Psalm 2, of course, the coronation psalm, as we saw this morning, is an, an engagement or an announcement of the authority which the anointed of the Lord has in ruling over God's affairs. The Son has been entrusted with the throne. In fact, through this psalm, if you notice back in verse 2 just briefly, he, he portrays, the psalmist portrays this defiance, this rebellion of the kings at the end of verse 2 against his anointed one. This is the first clue, this is the first indication in this text that we are dealing with an individual, a man who has God's special anointing on his life. The Spirit of God has anointed this one. But the psalmist does not leave us simply thinking of this one as the anointed one. In verse 6, he describes him as my king. In fact, God himself, the Lord is speaking, and describes the anointed one is my king, 
and then in verse 7, my son, and then in verse 12, the son. And so in, in sharpening focus as we move through this text, and in clarifying description, we are urged, we are compelled, we are exhorted, we're directed to honor the son. These foreign kings are challenged. They are commanded, kiss the son, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you had no other way to describe yourself as a follower of Christ, and I trust you are one tonight, if you were to describe yourself from the Old Testament as a Christ follower, you could certainly use Psalm 2, 12b. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You found your refuge as a sinner in Christ. You found forgiveness. You found deliverance. You found restoration. What a privilege it is to take refuge in Christ. So we head into the New Testament tonight. We want to look at the way the New Testament uses this psalm. Just three brief examples of how the New Testament uses this psalm because Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. Let's head over, first of all, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. The Lord, the one enthroned in heaven, had indicated, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the son, picking up this coronation theme, announces, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So as we come into the New Testament, we are introduced to, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, to Jesus as the king. Already, turn back just for a moment before we look at Matthew 3, to chapter 1, where David is clearly portrayed as a descendant of David. Matthew 1.1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then tracing through the genealogy, tracing through all these names that we find difficult to pronounce, by and large, we have this repetition of David. David, David. We have one who's been born who is a Davidic king. We have one who is a descendant of David. He has the right to David's throne. He has the right to rule in David's place. The promises of God in the Old Testament for the anointed rested on David. David occupied a strategic. He was the man after God's own heart, and God had promised to fulfill these incredible promises. God had engaged with David, as it were, as with a son. And as we come into chapter 2, I mentioned that this morning, after Jesus was born, these foreign kings, these total strangers to the Jewish faith and to the covenant-keeping God show up in Jerusalem after Jesus has been born. They anticipate this is the capital city. This is the city of the great king. In what other city would you find a prince? You certainly wouldn't find him in Bethlehem, would you? 
He must be born. The palace is in Jerusalem. The headquarters, the capital is Jerusalem. Where's the king? Where is he? And they're shocked, they're surprised that no one seems to be prepared. We, Gentiles, aren't you glad that Gentiles are included? Aren't you glad that God reaches out to people of all nations? We, Gentile magi, Gentile wise men, verse 2, saw his star. We're stargazers. We've gazed, we've been looking at the stars, and we know that in the quadrant that, that portrays Judea, there's a new star. We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. That's what you do with kings, isn't it? Herod hears this, and he, of course, pretends to worship. He's distressed. He calls in the religious leaders. They pull out the scrolls and realize, oh, right, 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 Bethlehem, right, Bethlehem, Judea. This is what the prophets have said. They have to, as it were, dig through their memory. They've forgotten. No one's anticipating the king. How is that possible? Can you imagine a visit from Queen Elizabeth to Washawa and no one knew about it? I mean, I think the mayor and the council would be gone overnight, would they not? Would we not be distressed? Would we not be shocked? President Obama, as he visits parts of the world, can you imagine him showing up at a community and no one knew? Here's the king of kings, about to be born, about to take his rightful place to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and no one seems to know. An unwelcome king, as it were. Surely this is not honor. Of course, Herod wants to get in the act. You'll recall, look at the end of verse 8. Go, he, he calls them privately and, and says to them, go make a careful search. I mean, it's only eight kilometers away. Go yourself, Herod. No, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, bring me word, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. I mean, I don't want to miss a worship service, do I, as the king? And of course, God interrupts that process. Now, as we come into chapter 3, you have the king beginning his official ministry. He is launching his public ministry in which he will declare to the world in which he has come that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His launch is going to be through the baptism of John. Now let me clarify just for a moment in case you have these confused. The baptism of John is not Christian baptism. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. You demonstrated to God that you were repenting, that you were turning from your sin and turning to God by going down into the water. For us, baptism follows repentance. We baptize those who have repented, and, and baptism is a declaration that Jesus Christ is my Lord. He is my Savior. I am identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. But here is John baptizing, baptizing sinners, baptizing people whose hearts and lives need to change. And as he looks up, there in the lineup of candidates is Jesus. 
And John in, in, in it, tries to stop him. Look at verse 14. John tried to determine, this isn't right. I, John, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Surely the Son of God does not need to repent. Why is he being baptized? What's the answer? He's taking the sinner's place. He's taking your place. He's taking my place. He's taking on himself the guilt, the shame of rebellion. Let it be so now, verse 15. It's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. God's plan, God's righteous plan, righteousness is will be engaged in this process in fact the sinner will discover that when he believes in Christ when he trusts in Christ God credits the guilty sinner with the righteousness of Christ we sometimes sing that hymn to God be the glory great things he hath done one of the stanzas said the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives it, this is an amazing arrangement isn't it as he launches this as he agrees and submits as Jesus submits to his father's plan and allows John to baptize him in taking the sinner's place as soon as he's baptized verse 16 notice he went up out of the water at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him and a voice from heaven said notice this here's the echo of Psalm 2 this is my son the Christ is the anointed one Jesus is the Christ He's the christened one. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now we read that fairly quickly and probably pass over it. We may not realize the Old Testament pattern that was indicated and that would have been called to the mind of John the Baptist and others who were part of that occasion. You see, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, if you were an office holder, if you were a prophet, a priest, or a king, when you officially began your ministry, when you were commended and launched into a public ministry, there was a public coronation. There was a public celebration, and there was always the anointing of oil. David you recall David. Remember how Samuel sent, uh, sorry, the Lord sent Samuel down to the house of Jesse? And all the sons were passing by, and the first son came in, tall, dark, and handsome. I think that's what the text says, one of the translations anyway. And Samuel looked at him and thought, obviously, firstborn, tall, dark, handsome, boom, this is it. And what did God say? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the 
heart. And then he says to Jesse, uh, none of these boys, none of these sons of yours, do you have any others? Oh, yes, we've got this uh, David who's out looking after sheep. Well, we won't start till he comes. Why? He's the anointed one. And as he comes in, Samuel has confirmed by God, rise and anoint him. And he takes the vial of oil, pours it over the head, because David is the anointed one. Uh, Aaron, when Aaron and his sons are commissioned and commended by Moses and launched into their ministry in a public ministry as priests, God instructs Moses, take oil and anoint them. So here at the launch of this ministry, Jesus is anointed as the king. Jesus is anointed. He is declared publicly before all, this is my son whom I love. Now the reality for you and the reality for me is we don't understand necessarily the full Old Testament implications of this. I think to the devil's mind, Psalm 2 was brought. Because in the very next chapter, what does Satan try to do? If this is the Christ, if this is the anointed one, from Psalm 2, there's an arrangement, there's a promise the Father has given to the Son saying, ask, and I'll give the nations as your inheritance. Recall that text we looked at? So here's the devil knowing this, knowing this is definitely the Son. This is the Christ. And he comes to Jesus in verse 8 of chapter 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He'd already been testing him. He'd already been providing opportunity for him to defy God, his Father. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. How high up were they? Wow. And their splendor. All this I will give you. You just ask. The problem is, the devil's not the one to be asking. He's not offering. It's the Father who offers. It's the Father who's promised this. Listen, the devil knows the Bible. Don't be fooled when you are tricked or tempted even through a misinterpretation of Scripture. The devil knows Scripture. He loves to take Scripture and twist it. No truth, no lie, rather, comes in pure form. It usually piggybacks on truth, doesn't it? That's how there, why there are so many false teachings, so many cults, so many people who have part of the truth. But they would not join us tonight in honoring Christ. They would not join us in kissing the Son, in yielding to Him, in following the ways of Christ, in declaring ourselves, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. All this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down to worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What happens in the passage of time? Do we not forget? Matthew 17, turn over there, please. Partway through the ministry of Jesus, partway through his declaration, his anointing, 
He has been anointed by the Father for this ministry. He has come to bring salvation. He has come as the King. He has come as the Redeemer. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But the disciples need to be reminded of this, as we do tonight. And in chapter 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. His glory is being unfolded. His glory, which had been hidden and was only revealed in his miracles. Take the, the, the changing of the water to wine. John chapter 2, first miracle Jesus performed. John 2, 1 to 11 describes this changing, this miraculous changing at the wedding. Jesus just performs a miracle to make the party last longer. Verse 12 interprets it for us. It says he thus revealed his glory through the miracle and his disciples put their faith in him. Whenever you're shown a glimpse of the glory of Christ as they were or as you open God's word or as you sing and praise him and you catch even a glimpse of the glory of Christ, you'll put your faith in him. You'll trust him. So here in chapter 17, Peter, James, and John, this inner circle who are being trained and given incredible privilege because they will bear incredible responsibility are taken up into a mountain. And there they see the glory descending on Jesus. He is transfigured before them. His face is shining. His clothes as white as the light. And Peter, who had never, was never short of words, never struggled with what to say, said to Jesus, Lord, it's, it's good for us to be here. Let's do something. Those of us who are activists, those of us who have a hard time sitting still even in a one-hour service, want to do something. Let's build something. Let's make something. It's good for us to be here. Uh, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud saying, This is my son. This is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Honor the Son. Engage with the Son. Trust the Son. Submit to the Son. Believe in the Son. In the Son you'll have life. In the Son you'll have salvation. The challenge for us tonight is how may we honor the Son? Our whole life, what can I do but praise you what can I do but give my life to you for when I think of what you've done for me when I think of you taking my place bearing my sin in your own body on the cross what can I do but yield to you follow you walk in your ways turn over to Acts 13 because in Acts 13 as this is the last text we'll look at the disciples are spreading this word. They are preaching and proclaiming in Jesus repentance, in Jesus forgiveness of sin, in Jesus salvation. 
And in Acts chapter 13, the first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, have been launched into their first missionary journey. Paul is then called Saul. And as they begin and his name is changed, he stands there in the synagogue and in verse 15, he is given an opportunity in a Jewish context. In a Jewish synagogue, he is given the privilege, verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue ruler sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. What an opportunity. What a privilege. What are you going to say? What will bring encouragement to people? What truths will you select? Remember, Paul is a scholar trained in Old Testament history, trained in Old Testament theology. What will he, what will he share? What will he, what will he speak on that night? that day so standing up he motioned with his hand and said you know preachers always use their hands some way don't they men of Israel and you Gentiles notice this who worship God listen to me the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers and made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power he led them out of that country and endured their conduct 40 years in the desert he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Then he traces the history. Just follow briefly with me through the time of Samuel, verse 20. And then the request for a king, namely Saul, in verse 21, who was appointed. And after removing Saul, verse 22, he made David, this anointed one, their king. I found David son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, here it is, we trace the lineage of Jesus back to David. The blessings, the anointing, the promises made to David and to his descendants are now fulfilled in the Son. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance. We saw that in Matthew. John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, Children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. That's the gospel. That's the truth that brings encouragement. That's the message that is the message of hope that you declare in a Jewish synagogue if you're given the privilege. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, they are now his witnesses to our people. 
Let me press home these next words as we close. We tell you the good news. We're announcing the gospel. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Don't you know Psalm 2? That's what he's saying to them. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, when God's will was accomplished in David's life, he died. He's buried with his fathers. His body decayed, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers... I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him. Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. What is the gospel message? It is the message about Christ. It is a message that honors Christ. God the Father honored his Son through Psalm 2 in anticipating the great blessing. He honored him at his baptism and declared and announced, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. He confirmed that at the transfiguration. And now as gospel messages go around the world, what do we have to proclaim to neighbors? What do we have to proclaim to the region of Durham except the good news? Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There's no better news in all the world. Let's give our lives to honoring Christ. Let's proclaim, let's sing of Christ, let's speak of Christ, let's live for Christ so this region will know that there's a God in heaven, and this God who's in heaven gave his one, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we do not need to be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures father we thank you that through the gospel through the proclamation of the gospel people may hear of your incredible plan thank you that tonight we can honor christ we can celebrate our savior we can declare that he is lord that he has provided forgiveness through his shed blood we pray, Lord, that you would help us to give our lives, give the rest of our lives to bringing glory to his name. And as we gather to remember him in his death, Father, we pray that the reality of his suffering, the reality of his wounds, which were for our sins, his punishment, 
for our violations of your commands, that the reality of that would sink into our hearts. May we be left in awe and wonder. Thank you that we may take refuge in Christ tonight. In his name we pray. Amen.